book of Ezra is the story of the Jewish people returning back to Judah after 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And when they got there, everything was ruined. And they had to start over. Everything was in ruins, and they had to rebuild out of those ruins. And even though this book was written hundreds of years ago, that's a story we can relate to. That's a story we can relate to because we've all had things in our lives of value that have been ruined. And we know what that feels like. We know the pain of something of value in our life being ruined. Maybe it was your dreams. Maybe it was a relationship. Maybe it was your confidence and courage in life just ruined because of some circumstance that just kind of knocked you off your feet. Maybe it was a career or something else of value in your life. And for whatever reason, whether it was your fault or someone else's fault or no one's fault, just because we live in a broken world, but you found yourself uh, with this thing of value that you care about, that is meaningful, and it's ruined. And we all know not only the pain of that, but we all know how hard, how difficult it is to rebuild from ruins. But this morning what I want to do is take a, a little different angle to what we've been talking about because sometimes when we find ourselves in ruined places, we find ourselves nose to nose with a challenge, it does present to us an opportunity. And in this case, what we're going to look at in chapter 8 today of Ezra, we're going to, we're going to look at ruins as being an opportunity for us to build something of value. Ruins give us this opportunity to evaluate our lives, to look for inconsistencies, and to make some decisions that will help us build more consistency in our faith. And I think that's something pretty valuable that we can build within ruined places. You know, and I just want to pause for a moment and address those of you, maybe in the room, those of you on the other side of that camera, that maybe have not yet trusted Jesus as your savior, as the leader of your life. I know sometimes that there, uh, there can be this obstacle, like maybe you've, uh, you've considered uh, learning more about faith, you've considered learning more about Jesus and uh, figuring out what that all means and, and, and what that would mean for your life, but sometimes you've come across people that you know that go to church people that you know that say they are Christians and their life is really inconsistent with what they say they believe. And for you, that's been an obstacle. That hypocrisy has been an obstacle. And you're like, yeah, you look at this person's life, yeah, they go to church, but they don't look any different than any of my other friends. Why would I want to pursue that? Why would I have any interest in that? I just want you to understand something that I get that. I, I understand why that I think is a valid criticism. But I also need you to understand that those of us who, who genuinely want to follow Jesus, those of us who, who genuinely want to live a Jesus-centered life, we don't always get it right. But that's the, that's the position that we are pointed in. That's the way that we want our lives to move in towards more and more consistency in our faith, even though we don't always get it right. It's one of the reasons why we gather together on Sunday morning. It's one of the reasons why we really encourage people to get into a small group, because we're imperfect people. We are saved by grace, but we're still imperfect people, and we need reminded to be consistent. We need challenged to be consistent, consistent in our faith. Sometimes we even need confronted when there are inconsistencies in our lives. 
I just want you to understand we recognize that about us as followers of Jesus. And I want to invite you just to keep listening, lean into what we're going to talk about today because uh, we know that we need reminded of what we're talking about today. You know, we look at Ezra chapter 8. If we jump back into that story together, open your Bibles there. You can take notes on our notes page on our digital bulletin if that is helpful. Ezra chapter 8 is a detailed account of Ezra leaving Babylon, going back to Judah. Now, last week we started that story, but it was kind of a brief description. Back in chapter 7, uh, it tells us when Ezra left. It tells us when he arrived. We know that he arrived safely. We know that everything that uh, he took with him arrived intact. Uh, we know that that 900-mile, four-month-long journey in the hot summer sun was successful because of what we read in chapter 7. But chapter 8 goes into much more detail about who went along, who specifically signed up for the journey, and specifically about some of the things that they took with them. And one of the interesting things recorded in chapter 8 is that there were no Levites who signed up for the trip. Now, if you're not familiar with what a Levite is, that probably makes uh, not much sense to you. Levites were the Israelite tribe who were responsible to help with the ministry of the temple. They helped the priests with the ministry of the temple. Today, in our church context, we have the snowman team. We have the congregational care team, the host ministry team. Uh, we have the worship team. We have all of these different teams, the finance team. They, they help make ministry work. They're very important to the success of any ministry. And none of the ministry team people signed up to go back to Judah. So that was, that was kind of disappointing to Ezra. And he sent out some people to go and recruit some Levites. And there were some who responded to that. And he gave them the responsibility of carrying the gold, the silver, and the, uh, the temple implements that they would use for worship. Hold on to that fact, because we're going to need it in just a moment. I want to jump into verse 21, because as this story unfolds, and there's all these details about who went and what they took, there's something really fascinating that happens right in the middle of the story. Verse 21, Ezra makes this fascinating decision. They're camped by the Ahava Canal, and Ezra says, I gave orders for all of us to fast and humble ourselves before our God. We prayed that he would give us safe journey and protect us, our children, and our goods as we travel. Now, that's pretty normal. We do that as a family before, you know, when we go on a trip, before we leave the house, uh, one of the people in the car will pray. And we'll ask God for this very thing, for God's hand of protection to be upon us. That's pretty normal. But verse 22 is interesting. He says, because I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to accompany us and protect us from enemies along the way. That's an interesting word, isn't it? He was ashamed to ask for a military escort. Now, why would he do that? He tells us his rationale. He gives us his reasoning in the next sentence. He says, after all, we had told the king, our God's hand of protection is on all who worship him, but his fierce anger rages against those who abandon him. 
And so we fasted. And we earnestly prayed that our God would take care of us. And he heard our prayer. We know that they arrived safely. We know that all the things that he took with them arrived intact. So Ezra did not want to ask the king for this military escort because he believed, according to him, he believed that that would have been inconsistent about what he claimed to believe about the powerful protection of God. Instead, he had everyone gathered together and they, and they fasted and they prayed. Now, if that word fast is not something that uh, you've ever connected to prayer, I'm not talking about the intermittent fasting dieting program that people do where they don't eat until 1 o'clock or whatever. That's fine if you do that, but that's not what this is talking about. This is someone who decides that they are going to give up eating for a period of time, and they spend that time in prayer, and that fasting demonstrates a fully dependent heart on God. That's what it's all about when you connect fasting with prayer, and that's what they did. They gathered together, they fasted, and they prayed for God's protection. Now, here's why this is so interesting to me. There's this whole list starting in verse 26 of all the stuff that they took with them. There was 25 tons of silver, tons, three and three-quarter ton of gold that they took along for this trip. And then they had all of the temple articles that they would use in worship. They were made of gold and silver and polished bronze. There was a lot of money on this trip. 900 miles, four months, through the wilderness in the hot sun. And what you have to understand, out in the middle of nowhere, there were Bedouin pirates. Think of desert pirates that they would just wait for caravans to come through, and they would hide behind things, and they would rob people and beat them up and steal their stuff. That was a pretty common thing. And Ezra's like, you know what? I don't want a military escort. We're just going to pray. We're just going to trust God to keep us safe on this really risky, dangerous journey. And to Ezra, that's what it looked like to be consistent in his faith. He was living out what he said he believed by faith. When you fast forward in the big story, the very next book is the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was another leader. He was the next major leader to leave Babylon, go back to Judah. He was the leader who helped rebuild, who helped organize and lead the rebuilding of the walls. So he's a, he's a big figure. It's a really important uh, character in this overall story. But when Nehemiah left Babylon, he chose to ask for a military escort. He looked at the military escort. When he, when he asked the king, can I have a military escort to keep us safe? He viewed that as God's provision of protection on him and those he was traveling with. He viewed that request and, and uh, this military escort as being consistent with his faith. He believed that God was going to provide safe travel through the provision of the military escort. He was living out what he believed by faith. And it brings up this really fascinating question, right? They had different perspectives. They both prayed. They both trusted God. But one said, I don't want a military escort because that would be inconsistent. The other one said, no, uh, I'm going to ask for the military escort. It's completely consistent with my faith in God. It's his provision. 
So what does it really look like to build a consistent life of faith? What does it look like to live out what we say we believe by faith? For example, should we all cancel our insurance policies? Something happens, your house burns down, just trust God. Trust God to meet your needs. You don't need the insurance policy. Just pray uh, that your house won't burn down, and if it does, uh, trust that God will meet all those financial obligations. Do I do that? Yes. But could you also view the ability to pay for that insurance policy as God's provision to help meet that need if it ever arose? How about this? Should we refuse to go to the doctor? Should we refuse modern medicine and technology? We're just going to pray. We're just going to trust God for the healing. We're just going to trust God for the miracle. God can do that. Yeah, God can do that. Well, could we also view this issue of we're viewing the doctor, we're viewing the modern medicine, modern technology as God's provision? He provided the understanding. He provided the skill. He provided uh, the technology. We view that as God's provision as a way that he would provide healing. I just want you to understand that these are not hypotheticals for me and my wife. These are things, these are the kind of questions that Angie and I lived out when our youngest daughter of faith was born. She was born with a pretty large hole in her heart, and it had to be repaired. If we would have done nothing, by the time she was in her 20s, her heart would have enlarged, and she, what they're telling us, that uh, it would have failed. She most likely would die. So something had to be done. And I can remember uh, there were people who that loved us, that cared about us a lot, and uh, prayed over our family, prayed over our daughter for a miracle, for God to intervene and God to, to close the hole of our daughter's heart so that surgery wasn't necessary. And can God do that? Yes, we believe God can do that. We also believe that God provided an incredible surgeon. We believe that God provided this incredible team of people at Children's Hospital and the technology and the skill and the ability to do some pretty amazing things. And we trusted those people that God would work through those skill and the understanding and the technology that was provided at Children's Hospital. We trusted God to do that through them. So you could look back on that and you could say, well, okay, was your decision consistent or inconsistent with what you say you believe about God? And I understand that's a difficult question. What does it really look like to build a consistent life of faith? What does it really mean to live out what you say you believe? We're not going to start with the hard question. Let's just start with something basic. Let's start... Uh, with something pretty obvious, all right? And then we'll build back to some of the harder stuff. Let's start with an obvious place where we can evaluate the consistency of our faith. We start with this. Do you have a genuine faith in Jesus Christ? We need to start there. Do you have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ? Jesus said this about himself in John 15. He says, he described himself as the vine, and we are the branches, he said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. There will be great consistency and growth in your faith when you are connected to Jesus. 
But apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. We cannot build a consistent faith apart from a consistent relationship with Jesus. And that relationship with Jesus starts with understanding that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, that you're not right with God, but you want to be. And believing by faith that Jesus' death on the cross, that His resurrection is what is required, faith in Jesus Christ alone, to forgive you of your sin, to rescue your soul from hell, to become the leader of your life. You cannot have consistency in your faith apart from Jesus Christ. It has to start there. When that happens, when you trust Jesus as your faith, uh, by faith, we'll use this image of the vine and the branches. That's when your dead branch is grafted into the vine of Jesus Christ and you are made alive and you can bear much spiritual fruit. You can start to see consistency in your faith where what you say you believe and what you do and, and, and how you view the world, they start to match up. Let's say you have trusted Christ as your Savior. Maybe you've been baptized. Maybe you show up to church. Is that the end of what it means to build a consistent faith? Is that all that there is when it comes to a consistent faith? Well, Paul said this in Romans chapter 6. He was talking to the believer about our ongoing journey in faith. And he asked this question, what shall we say? Should we just keep on sinning so that God's grace will increase in our lives? In other words, should your life not change? Just keep doing the things that you're doing. You don't need to change anything in your life. So that God's grace just keeps increasing in your life. And he asks it in such a way as that the answer is obvious. He says, well, of course not. By no means is that how we should live our lives. You're dead to sin. How can we live in it any longer? James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote this. He said, don't just read the Word of God, right? You come to church and maybe you go to a small group or you read things on your own personal time at home. He says, don't just read the Word of God. Don't just listen to the Word of God. You need to do what it says. You need to live it out. When it comes to building a consistent faith in our lives, there are some things that we can do to measure that. There are some ways that we can actually and honestly evaluate whether or not we are consistent in our faith or inconsistent. And one of the ways that we can measure that is through obedience, right? We can measure our obedience or disobedience and through surrender to God. We can measure that. Those are measurable things. I'll give you some examples. In Ephesians 4.29, here's, here's what it says. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. And already there's someone, oh boy, hmm. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Only what is helpful for building others up. Mm. According to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So we read it. You heard it. Now we can humbly ask ourselves the question. I look at my life. I look at that verse. Is my life consistent or inconsistent with that verse? That's measurable, right? You can evaluate that honestly. There's another one. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5. He said, you've heard that it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's pretty standard practice, right? We get that. That's pretty much how people treat each other. You treat people nice that treat you nice. And people that don't, you don't. 
That's pretty standard practice. But then Jesus says, but I'm going to tell you something different. He says, I want to tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Wow, I don't like that. That sounds really hard. But we can read that verse, that command from Jesus, and it's measurable. We can look at our lives and we can ask, is my life consistent or inconsistent with what Jesus called me to do? How about this? In Matthew 6, Jesus said, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Let tomorrow worry about itself. Uh, tomorrow has enough trouble. Uh, today has enough trouble of its own. Don't worry. And that whole section of chapter 6 is all about uh, Jesus challenging us not to worry about life, to, uh, to trust God, to just, you stay focused on God's kingdom, you stay focused on God's purpose, God knows what you need, He'll meet your need. You don't have to worry about that. Paul said this in Philippians 4, 6, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer, by petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Well, this is measurable. When it comes to things in our lives that would cause us anxious feelings, that would cause us to worry, this is measurable. We can say, well, am I going to worry about it or am I going to pray about it? Am I consistently living out what I'm called to do here or am I inconsistent with that? Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I pray about it and that's good for about 10 minutes and then I'm worrying again. How about this, about our behavior? Paul gives, it's not an exhaustive list, but he gives us a sample list of some behavior that he describes as obviously sinful. It's obvious. It's obvious if you, uh, that you know what God expects of us. And he says, here's, here's some examples. Sexual immorality, it's obvious. Sexual impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. How about this? Hatred. Discord, jealousy, fits of rage. Any of that running around in our world today? Selfish ambition. How about this one? Dissensions and factions. You know what those are, right? I'm mad about this or I'm mad at that person, and so I'm going to run around and I'm going to see if I can get other people mad at the person that I'm mad at or mad about the thing that I'm mad about, and I'm going to get a bunch of people on my side, and we're going to really mess things up, right? That's dissension. That's factions, obviously sinful. Envy, how about this? How do we handle alcohol? Well, drunkenness is on the list. Orgies, that's pretty, pretty uh, disgusting kind of stuff, right? And he, and he says, and the like. So there's, it's not an exhaustive list. There's other things that are just obviously sinful. And then he says in the next verse, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. He says, but, but for the believer... What we should be growing in, what should be consistent in our lives is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. These are the kind of qualities, these are the kind of attributes that should be growing within the follower of Jesus as we surrender our lives to the Holy Spirit. This is all measurable. You can look at your life and you can look at these lists and you can measure, am I consistent with this or am I inconsistent with this? Our level of obedience, our level of surrender to God is obvious and it's a measurable place to start evaluating the consistency of our faith. There's another place that we can look that I think is pretty obvious. It's connected, but it's a little bit different. 
And it's this, what about our concern about our testimony with unbelievers? Not with anybody, but specifically for unbelievers. That was certainly something that uh, mattered to Ezra. Do you care whether or not your example, your behavior, your attitude, your words, do you care that what you do and what you say can have an impact on other people, specifically your testimony with unbelievers? Does that matter to you? It mattered to Ezra. Ezra said back in chapter 8, he says, I was ashamed to ask the king. I was embarrassed. I wasn't going to ask the king for a military escort. And his reason was he felt like that would have been a bad testimony. I've already told the king that I have faith that God can protect us. And now I'm going to go and ask the king to protect us? He was, he was concerned about what his actions communicated to others about what it means to have faith in God. I understand and can relate to the frustration level in our country right now. I get it. The, 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 you know, the, the frustration has been rising, and the list of reasons why has been getting longer. But as followers of Jesus, people that say we are living Jesus-centered lives, losing our temper with people, Responding to conflict with others with, with grudges or giving people the silent treatment or blasting them on social media, posting foul language on social media. Look, I, I don't know if you knew this. This might blow your mind and completely shock you, right? Your pastor can see what you post on social media, right? Did you know that? Yeah. There's not a filter on there that says, don't let my pastor see what I post. So I see it. Just telling you, I see it. You can do with what you want with that information. I'm just telling you, I can see it. But here's something I want you to consider that I think is even more important than that. So can the unbelievers around us. Do you get that? So do the people in our community and the people that, that are around us that we want them to know Jesus. We want their lives to be transformed. We want their souls to go to heaven instead of hell. They see it too. Do you get that? They see our behavior. Does your testimony, do you have concern over that? That's measurable. That's something that you can honestly evaluate. Here's something else that I'll just throw in because I think it's important. I think it's timely. I think it's been going on for quite a while, and it's, it's something that I've, I've noticed within the, the church culture, and it's this. The way, the way Christians sometimes treat sexual purity. There are, there are lots of uh, examples uh, over the 20-plus years I've been in ministry where I, I've seen, I'm like, I just don't, I don't get, what are you doing? I was pretty clear, and maybe you don't know. Maybe that's it. Maybe you just don't know. So I'll clear it up for you. Sexual purity, the, the standard of God's expectation is sex is reserved between a man and a woman within the context of marriage. That's it. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Outside of that, God says no. And it's not just that treating sexual purity as, as some... Uh, like a passive request, like maybe if you feel like it kind of thing. It's not just that it's disobedience. 
it's a really bad testimony to the world around us. If we don't treat sexual purity any different than the world around us, it's a bad testimony about what we say we believe about God. You might push back. You know what? We're not under the law. Don't you dare get legalistic with me. Paul talks about our freedoms, and I understand we have, we have Christian freedom, and we're not under the Mosaic law. I get all of that, but Paul addresses that in Romans chapter, I'm sorry, in Galatians chapter 5. He says, talking to the believer, you're called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge in the sinful nature. Rather serve one another in love. And Peter says it a little bit differently. He says, live as free men, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Your servants of God act like it. If we want to build a consistent faith, we can measure our level of concern about our testimony, about our example, specifically with unbelievers. We can measure our obedience. We can measure our, our surrender to God. Right? So those, I think, are obvious. Those, I think, are measurable and uh, something that we can wrap our brains around pretty quickly. You may not like it, but I think you can understand it quickly. What about those more difficult questions about how we live out our faith consistency, consistently with what we say we believe? I'm going to use this toilet paper as an example, right? So last, what was it, February, March, this stuff all disappeared. And there was like people stealing it from the church bathroom. And no, I don't think, I don't think that happened. Maybe it did. If you stole toilet paper from the church, you probably needed it, and we're okay with that. We forgive you. But uh, this, this stuff was hard to find. And, you know, it's, it's perfectly possible uh, that that kind of thing could happen again, right? We know that every time the weather person comes on and says, hey, there's going to be a big snowstorm, milk disappears, right? I have no idea why milk disappears, but it does. So this just this human behavior, and so something may very well happen that toilet paper disappears again. So would it be wrong for a person to buy some extra toilet paper, keep it in a pantry somewhere so you have some extra? Or would it be like saying, you know what? Nope, not going to do that. I am not going to buy extra toilet paper. I'm just going to trust God to meet my toilet paper needs. If I need toilet paper, he'll provide it. Now, how exactly would God do that? I'm serious. How would God do that? Let's say you didn't prepare. There's no toilet paper anywhere. You can't get in the church here to steal it during the week, right? So what are you going to do? I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to ask God to meet my toilet paper needs. In the Old Testament, when the Israelites were traveling through the desert, through the wilderness, they needed food, right? There's no Walmart in the middle of the desert. So they're walking through the wilderness, and God provided for them manna, bread from heaven. It rained bread from heaven. And when they needed meat, he, he provided birds that they were able to just collect and whatever they needed to do to process the birds, and they ate the meat. So I suppose, you know, you run out of toilet paper, can't find it anywhere, and you pray, is, maybe that's what God will do. Maybe God will just rain down toilet paper on your backyard, right? I don't know. Could God do it? Yeah, he could, but he probably, probably wouldn't do it that way. So how, I mean, seriously, how would God provide your need of toilet paper in a, in a shortage. Most likely, 
If God provided that need for you, he would do it through someone else who thought ahead and prepared in advance some toilet paper that they set aside. They bought extra. They have enough to share, and then they help you with what they have. But who's wrong? Who's right? You know, you think about that person that says, well, you know, I, I just... I just want to rejoice. I just want to thank you, God, that you provided this toilet paper through the unspiritual preparation of that guy over there that didn't trust you enough. Kind of weird, right? And these are the kind of questions that, and I know it's kind of silly, but you, I hopefully you get the bigger point, that there are some questions like with Ezra and Nehemiah, who was right? Ezra said, I don't want the military escort. I'm just going to trust God. Nehemiah said, I want the military escort. I'm going to trust God. That's the way he's going to provide my safety. These are the kind of questions that require, number one, some God-given common sense. Number two, it requires some God-given discernment, wisdom. Now, where would we get God-given common sense and wisdom and discernment? You know where we get it? From God. How do we have access to it? Through prayer. God promised that if we need wisdom, that we can ask Him, and He will provide. He's promised us that. We do that through prayer. Now, we saw Ezra's prayer life, gathered everyone together, and he prayed for safety. But you didn't get to see Nehemiah's prayer, so I want to read it to you. Nehemiah's prayer was this. In chapter 1, verse 11, Nehemiah says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. He, was, he prayed this right before he went to talk to the king and asked that he could go back and uh, ask for these provisions. He was asking God, he was trusting God to provide in that moment. So Ezra's prayer life, Nehemiah's prayer life, they both matched up with their confidence. They both matched up with their courage, their prayer life matched up with their behavior. Now, I understand these kinds of questions are a little bit more difficult to measure, but I think we can honestly ask the question, does my prayer life match up with my confidence? Does my prayer life match up with my courage? Does my prayer life match up with the decisions that I'm making, with the behavior that I'm taking? For example, we pray about something. You ask God for help for something. Do you then continue to worry? Do you then continue to live in fear after you've prayed and asked God for help? Well, there's inconsistency then between your prayer life and your courage and your confidence in what you say you believe. We pray for God's will. Well, we have a decision to make or, uh, or there's something that we would like to see happen. We have some desire. It's outside of our control. And we pray for God's will to be done. Do we then get bummed out or angry when God's will is accomplished and it doesn't match up with our desires or what we hoped would have happened? Wait a minute. I thought we prayed for God's will. You know, one thing that we can measure in our prayer life is consistency. Not just in, does our prayer life match up with our behavior? Does our prayer life match up with our 
uh, decision-making and our courage and confidence in life. But are you consistent in prayer? Is prayer a normal part of your everyday life? Do you have this ongoing conversation with the Lord throughout the day? Or is the only time you ever pray is when you're in trouble? The only time you ever pray is you're standing nose to nose with this challenge and it's bigger than you are and you don't know how you're going to get through it. Well, I guess I better pray now. You can be more consistent in your prayer life. You can measure that. You know, I said at the beginning of this sermon that, that ruins in your life can be an opportunity to build something of value like consistency in your faith. And that is because ruins reveal what we really believe. Not what we say we believe, but what we actually believe. Ruins and challenges in our life, they tend to reveal inconsistencies that we have. Where what we say and what we do don't match up. Oftentimes, ruins tend to reveal those things. So I'm just going to ask you straight out to be humble, and I'm going to ask you this question, where are the inconsistencies in your life? Where are the places where you say one thing, but you do another? Where are the places in your life where you say you believe this, but the way you carry yourself, the way that you, uh, the, the decisions that you're making, the way that your heart and mind function, they're not matching up with what you say you believe. Where are the inconsistencies in your life? Do you want to build a more consistent faith? It starts with Jesus. Go back to John 15. It starts with being connected to, an, to a consistent, intimate connection to Jesus every day, all day starts with that connection with Jesus, and then it just continues. It just continues to the day you die. It continues to be this thing where you've got to be asking Jesus to point out, to reveal, to, to, to highlight the inconsistencies in your life, and ask Him to change them. I know this about me, and I'm guessing it's probably true about you. We're pretty good at ignoring or even making ourselves blind to our inconsistencies. We're pretty good at that. And so the challenge this week is when you leave this place, even maybe during this final song, would you take time and just ask Jesus to reveal to you maybe the inconsistencies in your faith that you've missed, that you've ignored, that you've rationalized? And then just ask him to help you. Be more consistent, to build consistency in your faith.